0: It has been an incredible and fun season. We're ramping up towards the Easter event and we've been walking through the life of Jesus. And it's this just amazing narrative around Luke chapter nine, I think it's verse 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And all of the narrative in the second half of the gospel is about Jesus headed towards this epic event, the cross, the death, the resurrection of our savior. And so we've been having conversations around the conversations that Jesus had on his way to the cross. And so there's these series of conversations that are powerful moments that Luke records and John records that help us recognize uh, how this whole uh, last season of Jesus's life went down. And so today we're going to focus on one of those conversations that he has that many of you are maybe familiar with. And I love the conversation that he has because someone asked him this incredible question, He says, uh, Luke 10, 29, he says, I wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And I love this question, and I love the tension that it invites us into, and I love kind of the heart behind this question. See, I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, like a a silly amount of years, too many years for someone my age to still be uh, hanging in teenager world. Come on now. It's the uh, best world to hang in uh, until you can't, you're not cool enough anymore, and then they kick you out. (laughs) But, uh, but I love being in Teenager World for about 15 years, and uh, one thing I would do every year, so usually somewhere around February, we'd, uh, we'd split the group, usually J High High School. Sometimes we'd split it again, guys and girls. So you'd have maybe four groups going on, and you'd have the conversation, like the conversation about dating that no youth pastor wants to have, Right. We'd have the conversation about relationships or dating, and we'd, we'd break it into each age group conversation. And we'd warn the parents, and you'd still email me anyways, concerned. And, and uh, <laughs> we'd always have those questions. And it, it was a great night, and we're always walking through kind of what, is it, what does it look like to be a, a follower of Jesus and trying to figure out just the relational dynamics. And every year, no matter what or how we approached it, there was always someone usually about a 17-year-old male, who would ask me afterwards very specific questions. Very specific questions. So if we're at the movies and I put my arm around her, but my hand's on her shoulder, is that okay? What about if my hand drops a little bit? And they would ask me these crazy specific questions, and I would laugh because I know what they're trying to ask. They're trying to ask... How far can I get, how close can I get to the line before I'm doing something that doesn't make Jesus happy? Where is the actual line? How far can I go? What is the closest I can get to where I'm not supposed to be and still be where I am supposed to be? And you laugh at the heart of that question because that's the heart of that question. Now, I made fun of teenagers, but I've been having that conversation my entire life in ministry with all of you as well. Come on now just change it to any other topic. And the question always comes down, okay, I know that this is, you know, probably Jesus doesn't want me to do this, but how close can I get to the line before I'm over the line? And this is not a new phenomenon for people who were around Jesus. As a matter of fact, the heart of this question comes from someone who is trying to do the same thing. They're basically trying to figure out, you know, I want to get you on the record, giving me permission to do what I already want to do. Yet we recognize that that was never the heart of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus hardly ever answered any questions like this without answering with another question that was really going for the heart of the question, which was the heart of the person. Saying, what is going on in the heart of a person who's trying to figure out how close I can get to disaster instead of how do I move away from disaster and towards the heart of Jesus? And that's the kind of question that we're faced with today. And so in that context, this young man comes up to Jesus and he says, who's my neighbor? And we got to define neighbor here for just a second because neighbor is a strange concept. Could you be my, would you be my neighbor? And all the teenagers were like, what? What is a neighbor? Well, the dictionary tells us it's a noun. It's a person who lives near someone else, near another. Or maybe it's just a person or thing that actually is near another thing. So you might live near, or maybe you just is near, right? Your neighbor might live near, or maybe he just is near. Or it says one fellow's human being. Well, that's pretty general. A fellow human being becomes instantly a neighbor. Are you kidding me, dictionary? It says to be genuine, generous towards one's less fortunate neighbors. Or it's just a person who shows kindliness or helpfulness towards his fellow human, to be a neighbor to someone in distress. See, I think we capture part of the answer by looking into the dictionary, but part of the answer is simply that being a neighbor is always about proximity who's in your path, who's near, who's close, who's around you. And so this young man approaches Jesus and he wants to know who's my neighbor? Now, if you have your Bibles, you can get to Luke chapter 10, and I'll be there in just a moment. And if you know this story, it's the story, we've heard this title before, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we hear the phrase Good Samaritan a lot in our culture today. It's actually something that we, you know, hospitals are named after it. There's story after story online about Good Samaritan. Matter of fact, about a year ago, there was a Good Samaritan story that kind of went viral, right? There was a Good Samaritan story about a woman who was in line uh, at the airport. And in front of her was a young father. I think it was a military father. And uh, he was home, and he had his child with him. And they were trying to get on the airplane. And she overhears the conversation that the father is having with the uh, booking agent or, or the woman who's working there at the airport. And he's given his identification, and he's given his ticket. And she says, well, how old's your child? And he said, well, my, I, my child turned two a couple weeks ago. And she goes, well, where's their boarding pass? He goes, well, what do you mean? She says, well, your child's two now. They need a boarding pass. And he goes, well, when I booked the tickets, they weren't two. And so I didn't buy them a boarding pass. And she's like, well, you can't board the plane with your two-year-old without a boarding pass. And he goes, well, what is that going to cost me? And she says, well, it's pretty expensive now because the plane is full. It's going to be about $750. Yeah. Yeah. The father became distraught. He didn't have $750. It was an important flight. He's got his two-year-old with him. What is he going to do? And so he gets on the phone and he starts making phone calls and he starts calling for help. And this woman overhears the entire conversation and she walks up she's next in line as he steps off and gets on the phone. And she says, what's the problem? And the, the lady tells her, well, he's trying to figure out he needs a ticket for a shop. Says, How much is it? She says, well, it's expensive. She goes, well, I'll pay for it. He goes, no, it's really expensive. And she says, $750. She says, no, I'll, I'll pay for it. And she pays for it. Somebody else observed the scene, actually took a picture of it. You can Google the story. It's a real story. I'm not making it up. It went viral. It must be true. Come on, somebody. And she pays for the ticket. And it goes, it goes viral all over the nation. Everyone says, ah, oh, good Samaritan, a good Samaritan. Look at this good Samaritan. She saw someone in need. She stepped up. She had the resources to help. And so she did help. She's a good Samaritan. And so when we think of the term good Samaritan, we think of the kindness of a stranger. That's a good Samaritan act, right? Anytime someone is kind towards a stranger and makes somebody else their neighbor, they're a good Samaritan. I think that is part of the truth of the story that Jesus is about to tell, but it falls way short of the entirety of the story. If you leave the idea of being a good Samaritan at the kindness of a stranger, then you miss a major piece of the tension that Jesus walks us into as he breaks down an answer to this incredibly important question. So if you have your Bibles, we're jumping in. We're in Luke chapter 10. And I'm gonna start on verse 25 and back up a little bit to go forward. Jesus, we know in Luke chapter 9, is resolutely moving towards Jerusalem. He's headed towards, he wants to celebrate Passover there with his disciples. He understands the triumphal entry. Come on, it's the fullness of time. It's almost time. If he doesn't get there in time, the rocks are going to cry out. There is a, a Hosanna getting ready to break out on the road, on the path while he's there. He knows that's coming. He knows then what's going to happen to him. He's been telling them along the way he's going to be handed over. They're going to kill him, and in three days he's going to. To raise again and they don't believe him, they don't understand, they they aren't sure what he's talking about. But he's on the road and he's on the path and he's on the way, and he's having important conversations along the way. And in Luke 10, 25, it says on one occasion, he's on his way to Jerusalem. It says, An expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, this tells you the heart right here. He didn't stand up to find out the answer. He stand up, he stood up to find out what Jesus was gonna say the answer was. He stood up to say, give me permission to do what I already want to do. This was a test. This wasn't an authentic question coming from a genuine place. However, he does ask an incredible question. He says, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now listen, I've had conversations with people. You know how you have the conversation, if you could have any superpower, what would you pick? And it tells you kind of about that person's personality. This is one of those other great questions you can ask. If you could ask Jesus one thing and just get an audible answer from him right this moment, what would you ask? That's a great question. And this guy nails it. If you had one chance to ask Jesus one question, this is a phenomenal question to ask. Jesus, what is what you are requiring of me? So that, come on, I have fire insurance. I'm going to the good place, right? That's how he frames it. What do I have to do so that I know that I can inherit eternal life? Now, it's hilarious that he uses the word inherit because what do you have to do to inherit things? Someone just needs to die, right? That's really all there is. You're not usually like a list of things that are your responsibilities for an inheritance. It's kind of an ironic way to place and frame the question. Pretty much your existence entitles you to whatever your inheritance is, unless you do some horrendous offending. That's a whole nother message. But he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you ever have the chance, this is the question you should ask, this is a great question. How good is good enough? What are you looking for? What do you want from me personally? That's a great question. Jesus though understands he's being tested. Can I put my arm around her or not? We hold hands, can we interlock fingers or not? Come on, all the questions. So Jesus replies to him with a question. Verse 26, he goes, you know, this guy's an expert in the law. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He says, you're, you have the title of expert in the law. You're a scribe. You've, you've spent your life studying the law, and you're coming to me asking me what it says? What's written? What have you seen written in there? And so he answers, and he nails the answer here. He says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He crushes it. He scores 100 on the test. He already knows the answer to the question he's asking Jesus. This is not to find out the answer to the question. This is testing Jesus. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Nailed it. Crushed it, A+. plus! You have answered, verse 28, correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you'll live. All of us need to hear that. Jesus said, that's the whole thing. Love God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus like, that's the thing. That's the whole thing. That's the summation of the law. That's the total of what is required of you. Just do that and you will live. Verse 29. Here's where our attention walks in. But he wanted to justify himself. Some guy, You know how hard it is to quit when you're ahead? You got the A. You got the A+. plus. You're like a footnote in the story at this point. You're a happy footnote. You're like, yeah, this guy walked up to Jesus, asked the question, nailed it. You could have gone down in history with like the A-plus star. We'd be referencing this guy as awesome for thousands of years, but... Here comes pride. I'm more special than most. Let me make sure you're talking specifically to me, Jesus. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, "Um, excuse me, further question, follow up. And who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He went from the best question you could possibly ask just right over a cliff. The who question, seriously, is the question you go for. You could have asked the what question. What do I have to do to do this well? That's a great question. You could ask the why question. That's a less great question, but it's a good question. Why, Jesus? Why is that important to you? Why do you care about that? That would have been a great question. You could ask the when question. How often do I have to think this way? Is it all the time? Is it some of the time? Is it every single situation? All of those are great questions. You could ask the how question. How do I actually do it? What does it look like loving my neighbor? What does it look like loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? We're always asking that question. Those are great questions, questions to ask Jesus. The who question is the wrong question. Why? Because the who question says, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like too much. Can you narrow down who I actually have to care about? Can you, can you give me who the insiders versus the outsiders are? Can you make sure I don't waste my time, energy, strength, resources loving on someone that you don't care if I love on? Can you narrow who my neighbor is? He tanks with the wrong question. Can I interlock my fingers when we hold hands? Tanks with the wrong question. And in response, Jesus tells a story. Now, it's important to note that this is a story. This isn't uh, any indication this is based on fact. Um, It's just a parable. It's a teaching point. It's an example. It could be based on fact. It could be loosely law and order, loosely based on facts, right? We're not sure if it's based on facts. Many people, when they read this, they want to put an allegory into every point and say that every character represents another thing. Um, Okay, that's fun, but it's not what Jesus does here in this moment. He just gives a very clear picture of what actually happens in this circumstance. And so Jesus tells a story in reply, and he goes, okay, imagine this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this tension of this story would make a lot of sense in their context. In our context, it don't, doesn't always make a lot of sense. Later, I'll kind of give you a, a version of the story that maybe makes more uh, sense in our context, but you got to understand a couple things. There is a road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's 17 miles long, and it drops about 3,000 feet in elevation in those 17 miles. Here's a picture of, uh, of that road uh, kind of today how it looks, right? It's uh, So this is modern picture, obviously, right? I don't have a 2,000-year-old JPEG I could put up here, right? But you can see, even just driving this right now looks a little bit treacherous, right? There's a cliff on the other side. It's not done very well. It's not the road you really want to be on. But you can see it winds kind of through these rolling hills, and there's crevices on the side of The road, and there's uh, blind corners that come around uh, uh, oftentimes. Now, this was a popular road because people had to get to Jerusalem when there's festivals and when there's sacrifices to be offered and the temples in Jerusalem. And so this road got a lot of use, even though it wasn't a very safe or healthy uh, place to be on. It was a hazardous trip, not just because it dropped in 3,000 feet, but with these windy curves and with these crevices and these hiding places and these hills and cracks that people could escape into in the side of the hills. It was notoriously loaded up with robbers and thieves and bandits. Because you knew people were going to the temple to worship, and they brought their offerings, and they brought their families, and they brought their stuff with them. It was a place where you could lay in wait and waylay people. It was not a safe road. When I was growing up, we had a road like this, in my, uh, not in my direct neighborhood. I was an Oakland A's fan. And we used to go to the games, and there's a road. It's called Heggenberger. It's not as dangerous as it used to be back in the day. But we would go there to go to Oakland A's games. And if we didn't take the BART train, we would drive with, uh, with my family through there. And there was always a moment where my parents would say, okay, now roll up the windows and lock the door. We're going through the shooting gallery. And we drive through this really sketchy neighborhood. There was a lot of violence. It was just known. People were carjacked there or robbed there. It was a bad area. And it had a kind of a nickname. We called it the shooting gallery. And so this road had a nickname. They called it the way of blood or the path of blood or the bloody road. Because it was not unusual to see blood on the side of the road where something bad had obviously happened not too far from when you just got there. This is a sketchy road. It was a sketchy place. And so Jesus paints this narrative and he says, there's a man and he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers. And then listen to the visual of this. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And they went away and they left him half dead. Now it's significant that they stripped him from his clothes in the story that Jesus tells. And the reason is based on his clothes, you could tell a lot about a person. Is he wealthy? Is he not wealthy? His ethnic background might be visible based on the style or the coloring of his clothes, where he's from. You might be able to tell some things, where is, what his general background is. And the reason this is significant is Jesus is painting a picture of a nondescript person. Could be anybody. Could be the wealthiest person in town, the most influential person in town. Could be a, a, a vagrant. Could be anybody. We have no clue, no picture of who this is. We just know it's a human created in the image of God in distress. No biases are allowed to be applied to this state of this man. He doesn't have his clothes. You can't identify him. He's on the side of the road. He's half dead. You can't hear his accent. He's not speaking. Verse 31, Jesus continues to paint this story about neighborly attention. He says a priest happens to be going down the same road. Not unusual. He says when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This would have been a little uh, offensive in the picture of this. He's talking to a scribe, a religious leader of the time, someone who's absolutely studying the law. And he says, one of your holy people that you respect is walking down the road and he sees the distress. He moves to the other side and says, so too a Levite. Now, this is not of the house of Aaron. This is a Levite who would have, uh, his, his role would basically be a serving role in the church, right? Someone who comes and does service at the church and does a job and cleans up and is active in the temple and says he comes down the road also. And when he comes to the place he sees them, he also passes by on the other side. And Jesus paints this picture of folks who you would say are following the law, are obeying the rules and the principles of God, are able to look at a nondescript person, just some guy, and say, no, we're not going to help. We're going to get on the other side. No reason is given. Maybe it's fear. Some have speculated that maybe one of the ways that robbers would rob is someone would lay on the side of the road and play possum. Possum. And so it might be dangerous. It might be risky to engage. Some have speculated that for a priest or a Levite, the, the, op, the, the possibility that he's dead and they were forbidden to touch a dead body. Got to think they're going down this 17 mile road. They've just come from the temple. So they're ceremonially clean according to their laws and customs. If they touch him, now they're unclean. They might have to hike back up the road and go back to the temple and perform ritual in order to be clean again. And ain't nobody got time for that. I got places to be, appointments to keep. Come on now. We're not sure why. Again, Jesus is just leaving the story open and giving us room to speculate why that might be. The simple reason is this. We don't know. We just know that it's not heroic of them and it's not neighborly. Then verse 33 hits and the narrative changes and he says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and when he saw him, He took pity on him. This would be an offensive statement to this scribe at this point, because the nature of a Samaritan, and we talked a little bit about this with the woman at the well, was someone who ethnically they hated, they were opposed to, who they felt were uh, inhabiting the land unjustly. They were manipulating faith and religion in a way that they didn't believe was authentic. They didn't like these people at all. And it says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. And the word for pity here is amazing. The Greek word, it's it's zomaya, right? That's crazy, right? And here's why I like it. Because it literally means to feel in your bowels and yearn for someone, right? It hits him in the gut, it's a gut punch when he sees someone in need. Ever had that feeling? You're just cruising along and you see a need. And sometimes you cruise along and it doesn't affect you at all, but sometimes it's like, mm, right in the gut. Something changes, something moves, something shifts, something uh, is affected by it. And it says he's moved with this. He has this this splat, sees a Maya in his gut. Go figure. And look at his response. It says he went to him verse 34 and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil on them and wine and then he put the man on his own animal, donkey, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took every resource he had on hand and he said I can't just move past this need. He took his oil He took his wine, he took his own bandages, he gave up his mount, and it says, and he brought him to an inn to take care of him. And then look at where it goes from here. It says, the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. The denarii were like the big silver coins of that day that were equivalent of a full day's uh, wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper and looking after him, he look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have had. Now, this is a tough uh, thing to figure out just how far this generosity goes. He's already said my own resources that I have on me, I will expend them all on you. You can have my bandages, my oil, my wine. Then he throws them on his mount, takes them and he gives them two days wages. But what does that really mean? I, I I've studied, I can tell you people disagree, but it's somewhere between two weeks and two months worth of staying at the end he prepays for. So, uh, archaeologists have found in Rome uh, signage that kind of dates to this period for inns. And basically, to stay the night at an inn, it's not an inn like we would think of, it's not a hotel, like full service kind of thing. To spend the night in one of these rooms was 132nd of a denarii. So, two denarii potentially, depending on additional expenses, somewhere between two weeks and two months worth of prepayment for this person who's been near death to recover, to heal up. And apparently it's a road he travels enough that he has enough relationship with the innkeeper that he can say, look, if he incurs any more expense, put it on my tab. I got this, here's my credit card. You gotta remember, there's no like filing for bankruptcy back in this time. If this guy incurs a debt and the Samaritan can't pay it, he's looking at real problems. We're talking jail, imprisonment, beating. His family can be enslaved. I mean, just think about the depth of risk to leave an open-ended check for a stranger. This is what he does. You see the picture that Jesus is painting here? this insane picture of kindness and generosity. Verse 36, Jesus still hasn't answered the question, who's my neighbor? He hasn't answered it. He didn't just say, okay, you can interlock your fingers, but the hand's got to be where I can see him, right? Come on now. He doesn't just answer the question black and white. He paints a picture and he asks this guy a question. He goes, okay, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? This guy's been crushing it up until this point, so I expect him to get this one right. He certainly isn't unintelligent. So verse 37, it says, well, the expert in the law said, oh, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. I don't know if you heard the story before. I hope you have heard the story before. It's not the first time you've heard it, but what an amazing tense picture that Jesus paints for this guy who's just kind of chippy asking a question. I'll test you out, Jesus. What's the criteria? How do I get over the line so that I'm okay with God, right? Here, I'm not okay. Here, I am okay. Here, not eternal life. Here, yes, eternal life. Where is the line? And Jesus says, Where do you think it is? He says, oh, I love God with everything you got. Love your neighbor. He's like, Okay. He goes, Okay, but yeah, that's still not exactly where the line is. Where's exactly the line? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus paints this crazy, ridiculous picture of extravagant mercy and risk and love and compassion on a stranger. That sounds exhausting, Pastor Mike. That sounds exhausting. Well, I mean, what can I really do that looks like that? I mean, I get the in my stomach every once in a while, but I can't just be dropping my credit card on every person. What can I do? How do I actually live this out? What does this look like for me? I love that Paul, when he's writing a letter to the Galatians to battle legalism, he clarifies how this actually looks and what's actually expected of us. Galatians 6, 9 through 10, he says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper what? At the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, it's that similar idea of time at the proper, as we have the right time, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong in the family of believers. And some of us are wired in such a way that we just get, we just get tired. We're I mean, trying to do good all the time. And then we we go, good, 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 good. And then whew, we crash, right? We can't do anymore. And, G- and Jesus is saying, you gotta love the person who's right in front of you. And Paul's saying, there is gonna be opportunity and there's gonna be times. Don't wear yourself out at the proper time, at the right opportunity. That's when you'll do good to whoever's in front of you. We can all get tired of being generous. We can all get tired of serving. We can all be tired of caring and being engaged and paying attention. And Paul's saying, don't wear yourself out. Out on those things, if you try to do everything, it won't work. There is an opportunity, there's a time, and when it's in your opportunity, when you're walking down the road and you see the person, that's the time. When the thing in your gut triggers, that's the moment. He says, Don't let yourself get shut down, but as you have the opportunity, do good to the one that's in front of you. He says, Be kind. And don't even forget also about the family of believers who need that. You know, I heard a phrase from a pastor, Andy Stanley, probably 10, 15 years ago now. It's always challenged me in this. And he just said this, and it's a great way to apply this principle. He says, just do for the one what you wish you could do for everyone. You're not going to be able to do for every single person. You're just not. But sometimes you're going to be the guy walking down the road, and you're going to see the need. Come on now. And the thing's going to hit you in the gut. That Holy Spirit thing is going to go and you're up. You're up. It's your turn. Step in. Step forward. Make a difference for the one. And you might have to walk past the next one because you're still with the last one, and that's okay. But the principle is simply do for the one. Can you imagine if we all did for someone what we wish we could do for everyone, how much impact that would make? Well, Pastor Mike, that's not fair. Like, I can't help Charlie, and then I'm not helping Jeff, so I don't help anybody, and that's what we do, Right? I can't help Charlie because I don't have enough to help Charlie and Jeff and if I try to help both of them I won't do it. So, so then I don't do anything and here's the principle as you have the opportunity as Charlie's in your path just help Charlie and trust that Andrew's going to come along and help Jeff because we're all doing the thing we're called to do I didn't mean to pick your kid to help you but he should help you also <laughs> you just sat in the front <laughs> so let me ask you the question who has God put in your path? Who's your neighbor? See, we, we talked about proximity, but it's really about who God put in your path. Let me give you the parable in a modern context. Maybe it'll be easier. Uh, this is not scripture. This is just Pastor Mike putting the parable in a modern context. Imagine cruising down Meridian, going southbound at 530. No one's moving, right? <laughs> Someone cuts over in in front of someone, and it drives them crazy. Road rage takes over, and so they ram them. And the car moves off to the side of the road to deal with this accident, and the the guy who did the ramming gets out and, and, and sees the guy who cut him off, and he just attacks, wails on him, knocks him down, knocks him out, strips his clothes off, kicks him, leaves him on the side of the road. The car's damaged. It's not drivable. The guy's on the side of the road. The guy who does the assaulting jumps in the car and leaves. Meridian's now at a snail's pace still, but at least one lane's moving faster than the other lane, so people start getting over. And down the road, here comes Pastor Mike, and I look over to the side, and here's the guy on the side of the road. He's naked. It's a sight. But I get over into the other lane, because, come on now, it's traffic, and it's frustrating. I got places to go, and I pass. And after that, one of the elders is driving by and they see him. And they're like, I can't get in the middle of that. And they get over and they pass by. And suddenly a car stops and a person gets out. And it's not just any stranger, it's an undocumented immigrant from a different faith. And they get out. And they risk everything because they don't have the same security that I have or that you have. And they bandage that guy's wounds on the side of the road. They recognize it's going to take forever for help to get there. So they throw him in their car and he bleeds everywhere. They drive him to the hospital. And when he gets to the hospital, the guy, he can't even even articulate who he is. They can't get any information, and they're like, we can't help this guy without some insurance. And he says, I don't have any insurance. I'm I'm not even safe for me to be here, but here's everything I have. Here's here's all the resource that I have. I'm going to pay for whatever medical costs he expends, expenses he incurs. I'm going to cover it for him. And so they cover it for him, and and they said, well, we don't know how much it's going to be. And he says, well, listen, this 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 is a card that links to everything I have. You charge until there's nothing left if that's what it takes to help this guy. That's the picture that Jesus has painted here. Do you understand? That's the visual that he's saying. It's not just the random act of kindness of a stranger. That is a good Samaritan, but it crosses a boundary even further than that. It's the intentional kindness that crosses social boundaries and says it's worth it to help the one. And Jesus paints a picture and says, that's the kind of risk and that's the kind of intentionality it's going to take to truly love your neighbor. And if that isn't part of your picture of what a neighbor is, you've missed the heart of Jesus. You've just missed it. If your neighbor only fits a certain profile, then you've missed it. Jesus is loving your neighbor like yourself is going to be way harder than just helping someone who, it could have been me. It's more than that. It's having a heart and compassion to reach beyond that. A neighbor It's really anyone who's in need. The question isn't, who's my neighbor? The question is, who isn't my neighbor? Jesus flips this story and makes the outcast the hero. And he thinks outside the boundary of our neighborhood, and then there goes the neighborhood. Martin Luther King Jr. taught on this parable. I listened to it, and it was fascinating. He asked a question, and I just... haunting me and he said the question isn't what might happen to me if I help the question is what's going to happen to them if I don't and that's the heart of the good Samaritan not what's at risk to me people will judge me if I help this person or it might cost me I might be late or I might be it might be a trap it's a trap I don't know if it's a trap but what if it's not what'll happen to them If I don't. And so, as we shift the missional velocity of our church and ask this question how do we change our world? It's going to start by figuring out how to love our neighbor and getting past the who question, not getting stuck on the who question. I heard it expressed this way, and and I love this picture. We're going to identify our neighbor as the person who's across the street, or the person who's over the border, or the person who's around the world. Whoever God puts in our path in that moment. We're gonna love the person across the street. We're gonna love the person that's over the border. We're gonna love the person around the world. And we we can't do it for everybody, but we can all do it for someone couple weeks ago, I had this incredible opportunity to go to Costa Rica. And I told you guys I'd share with you guys a little bit. And I'll give you snippets as we go. But one of the places that we went in in Costa Rica, we went on this missionary journey. And and, uh, it was interesting because the the point of the missions trip was they wanted to bring pastors so that we could see the work that was going there so we can get inspired to to involve our congregations and our body in it. So I want to just give you a little, just a very little taste. And I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't take nearly enough pictures because it's kind of weird taking pictures. It's like, here's a selfie of me doing missionary, like, it just didn't, like, it was a weird place to take pictures, okay, and there was a lot of need, and so I'm gonna give you just a couple, and I apologize, it's not great pictures, but one of the places we went in Costa Rica is a place called La Carpia. Now, La Carpia is significant because it's only about a mile and a half uh, in total circumference, a town that doesn't really, it's not supposed to be a town, okay, it's supposed to be a dump, it's just the landfill, and, uh, and it is right now, in terms of impoverished ghettos, um, it is the number one most impoverished place in all of Central America. Is what they, they expect. There's about 40,000 people who live there. 20,000 of them are kids okay, it's mostly filled with refugees from Nicaragua because uh, Costa Rica doesn't have like a standing army or really a border patrol, like, they don't guard their border and Nicaragua has had a ton of, since the 80s and 90s, a ton of political uh, uh, ups and downs and coups and so families and people have just fled and as they fled into Costa Rica where they, it's not exactly the place where there's the most resources but at least it's safe, they have fled to this place called La Carpia and the reason that they've gone there is because there's a dump, And a dump means resources. And I think I shared this, but we literally saw people jumping on dump trucks to get first dibs on garbage before it got to the dump. Fighting over garbage first in line. And so there's 20,000 kids of the 40,000 people in this area. And there's one school, K through six. That's it. And kids go to school for a couple hours a day in shifts because it's just crazy. And the missions team that we were there with, Christ for the City International, they actually have a base there. They have two bases there, and they have the only medical facility that serves them, this group. They have a little clinic that, that this woman, she's been there for 30 years. She's amazing. I think her name is Susan, was there. And the, one of the bases, they, they have, like, teenagers that they serve. They have, they have the only grass in the whole city. There's one patch of grass in the whole city. There's one field. 20,000 kids, there's one field. And they they have the field, and so they run sports things and teach kids, and then they run clinics and help people learn skills and computers and and sewing and cooking and just any way to make money that doesn't involve the sale of flesh. Honestly, they're just desperate to try to help them do that. But you have this army of kids that are just running around in this mile-and-a-half radius. And there's two rivers there, and they're so polluted. It's dis- it's beyond disgusting. And at, at the base, I'm going to show you a couple pictures here. Um, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and throw the first one up there. So this is, um, that's the back of Kelly and Brandy, those of you who know him know them. Uh, they're walking, we're walking through, and it's just a shantytown. Everything is just uh, lean-tos and... Uh, 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 corrugated metal, Um, you know, they're finally getting some electricity and water. I mean, they had nothing there. It's just 40,000 people, no services, right? Everything goes downhill towards the river, so the river's just completely polluted. So we're walking. You can show the next one. Um, These are the steps, right, that they put in to get down to the river, and literally, we're talking 20,000 people just live along these steps and just this kind of proximity on side to side to side to side. And so we walk down the steps and we get down. You can just kind of see this is, this is, I mean, there's hundreds of people living in just this space that is this. I mean, this is what they got. And so, um, so you get to the bottom and there's this base that they've built. Now, the reason it's up high like that is they have a, uh, they have a storm season. And so the storm season comes in, and it came in, and it wiped out the base the first time (laughs) because there was no, they had to get it up on stilts, basically, right? So they built this base, and the point of this base is they just want a place for kids to be in shifts as they can't be in school. And so this team is down there, and they're serving. And uh, you know, you walk up. You can see that's the river right there. You can't see how polluted it is. What's crazy is, as you study, uh, like one of the most important, significant things in Lacarpia was there was a bridge to get across this river. And it doesn't exist anymore because they got plundered because it was wood. And so they needed the wood to do things. And, so, and on the other side of this hill is an actual town where a lot of people would go and work. And they would cross this shanty bridge to get over there and hike over this hill with their kids in hand so that they can go work because they couldn't pay the $0.35 cents it is to ride a bus to get around the side of the hill. They couldn't do it, so they have to hike. So now it's just crazy. But anyways, so this is a a picture, an example of the base that they built that's there. So the problem that they ran into, I think you can see it in the next picture. Oh, this is them, uh, just with some kids, loving them upstairs. It's amazing, and just the pictures of the baby. It's just awesome. And they're just loving these kids. And this is, I mean, this is like such a small microcosm. That's how many they can safely put up there kind of in one time and they just bring them in in shifts and there's armies of kids everywhere. It's amazing. It was beautiful. Um, So here's little picture I wanted you to catch. So the tension that they have is that's the retaining wall that keeps the bottom half from flooding, right? And it's not enough. They can't like it floods and then all the water that comes down those stairs and all the waste that comes out of those houses floods down the stairs and then it takes out the bottom of their base. But they use that space. If they can use that space, then they can serve twice as many kids at one time. But they lose that space. And so what they had asked us for is, would we be willing? Uh, well, they didn't even ask us. We just said, what can we do to help? And they said, we got to build a wall higher here so that the water floods out and doesn't wipe out our base. And so, so one of the things I'm going to ask you at, at the end is, if you want to help, you, we just we can help them. That's the thing we can do. And and I don't know, I, I have been counting how many pictures, I forget. Is it, are they going to start singing on the next one? There's, yeah, let's not do that yet. Um, <laughs> and so so why am I saying this? I'm saying this because I, you could pick a lot of places, right? We can, we can try to help everywhere and accomplish nothing, or we can pick a place and we can help somewhere. We can help a person that's in front of us. And so this got in front of me and I said, okay, here's the thing. We haven't picked a place to just help. Here's a thing that we can do as a church body to find a neighbor and love them. And so here, here's just a, a, a shot of them singing. And I'm really oh, that's that's a different thing. Sorry, I lost that one. That's uh that's that's other churches in uh, in Costa Rica praising God. And I just thought it was amazing for us to see that they were giving God their best in in places that's but that's way up in another side of town where they actually have resources. So I, I, I my fault. Uh, can we get the one where they're the actual singing? Oh, the iPhone video, it's not gonna work. That's the one I'm looking for the embarrassing one because I don't know how to use my and so this is what they're doing they're learning and this is Pastor Mike doesn't know how his phone works it was new Anyways, that's the work that's happening up there. I wanted to show you a picture of of what was going on, and that's just a place. We can pick any place, but there's a place where there was a need, and I just thought that was amazing. So so here's what we're going to do. Would you stand up? We're going to pray, and I'm just going to challenge you. Who's across the street? Who's over the border? Who's around the world that you're called to neighbor up with? Maybe it's these guys. And so, uh, so I'm giving something to them. They need about a thousand dollars, and uh, I'm giving something to them. If you want to do that, I'm not going to take an offering. I'm not putting the pressure on you guys. But there's uh, there's envelopes in front of you. If you want to do that, just write Costa Rica on it and put it in the envelope and throw it in the gray box on the way out, and we'll make sure it gets there. And we'll build the wall so that it doesn't uh, it doesn't. Uh, flood on them, or if you'd like, Pastor Andrew will be out here at the coffee, and uh, he can swipe a card if, if that's easier for you um, over there, and you just want to say, hey, I mean, I'll give him 10 bucks. That's, that's, I can do that. That's a neighbor I'm now aware of. That could be one. Um, I know this church has a history of helping in, in Mexico, and we got a uh, Charlie over here who's got a dream to take us back there to build some things, and we got to make those things happen, and I just, I want to challenge us. If we're going to hit the next season and change our world, then we better have our eyes up and recognize who our neighbor is. It'll drive everything else. So Jesus, thank you for a group of people, a family, a body of Christ that has a heart to follow you. Not to ask, what's the bare minimum we have to do to be okay? How do we buy fire insurance? That's not the conversation we want to have. The simple conversation we want to have is what does it look like to really take steps and follow you? And you paint a picture. It looks like not getting worn out doing good things and taking care of the person you put in our path. Not making a judgment about that person, not making a, 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 an assumption about that person, but simply going over the top in kindness and mercy to demonstrate your heart towards broken and hurting and lost people. And if we got that right, it would change everything. So give us that heart, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.